Uh, we'll be in Ephesians 1. Continue on. With the thought of our series throughout Ephesians, we'll be there for a while together. And the big idea we've been processing together is what if God was our God, right? What if God was ours? How do we, in some sense, personalize this together? And uh, that's where we'll be today in Ephesians 1. We'll be covering 7 through 10, verses 7 through 10, as we continue on here today. This past week was Valentine's Day. I hope you had a good one. The idea is it's day of the year where we show intentional love to someone. It doesn't have to be your sweetheart. I heard a story about a pastor who had an elementary school age kid, and his kid was in a program, a class, where everybody in the class would be connected and hooked up with someone at an assisted living center. So you would have a buddy, and throughout the year you would visit them, and you would do things, and you would give them things. And so on Valentine's Day, uh, the elementary school kid, third grader, his teacher came and said, why don't you write an encouraging note about love to uh, your buddy in the assisted living center, and uh, you might write something from Romans 5. Romans 5, the great passage in the scripture, talks about peace with God, God's love for you. Write that down and just give it to him. The kid's like, okay. And then he goes and he writes it down. They go to the nursing home, and he arrives and... Uh, he shows his dad the card he made right before he gives it to the man. And it turns out the kid had made a mistake. Instead of writing Romans 5, he had written out Acts 5. Okay, so if, if you don't know Acts 5, it's a gruesome story where a man and a woman lie to God and they are actually struck down in church and they have to be carried out. And thankfully... The dad caught this before he actually gave it to this dear, sweet old man. <laughs> that wasn't my family. It wasn't my kid. <laughs> Different pastor. Uh, but sometimes our most well-intended acts of love can actually flop, right? I'm thankful that we see in today's text that God's act of love towards you never flop. They never fall on their face. So the big idea today is going to be that God lavishes his love and his blessings on you according to the wealth of his grace. That means according to the vastness of all God's love, he is going to pursue you affectionately in Jesus. And he doesn't miss his mark. He hits it every time knowing exactly what you need and what will satisfy you the most. As a little uh, exercise here, I want you to picture a food, a small delight, something you love more than anything. Don't pick something that's both delicious and nutritious. Cut off the nutritious part. Pick something you really love. Could be something greasy. Could be something sweet. Could be Angie's pancakes. Pick anything that you love. Mine is easy. Valentine's Day came, love the chocolates, get those chocolates sometimes I share, but not the turtles, don't come near my turtles, I'm not sharing those, uh, and I was eating them this week, and I had a, a flashback to when I was younger, and I would be in the other room as my mom was making homemade dessert, She's a, she likes to bake, 
She caters sometimes, so she makes really yummy things. And I, I remember, even in preschool, strategically timing my arrival to the kitchen as she would finish up exactly. And I did that because if I was able to beat my two older brothers to the bowl, then I would get the spoon, right? If you know anything about mama's bacon, you get the spoon, you get to sop it up, and you get all the extra icing. So I remember doing that repeatedly, and she would leave just enough for me to have one spoon of sweets. And on the best of best days, she would leave double. So I would get one spoonful and then another. And maybe you can experience that, relate to that. Maybe when you make your coffee, you don't just put one spoonful. You look around, you put three or four spoonfuls of sugar in there. My, uh, my kids do that with grapefruit. Heap sugar on top. Isn't grapefruit good enough without sugar? But they do it. They want the double impact. And that's what you're supposed to feel when you read Ephesians 1. Especially what we're talking about today. God is giving you two spoonfuls of His lavish love. And it's for you. And it's sweet. It's in abundance. And you're supposed to taste and see that the Lord is good. So let's jump in here. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 7. If you're an outliner, if you're a note taker, here's the first point. First point is redemption. God rescues us in Christ. That's the first spoonful of love that God has for you today. Redemption. God rescues us in Christ. Let me show you where we get that. Look at verse 7 and 8 with me. Word of God says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now notice the very first clause there. What does it say? In Him. Right? That's how Paul begins. In Him. Well, who is the Him? Understand that verse 7 is connected to the previous verses that we preached last week. So we have to kind of go all the way back to verse 3 to make sure we know who Paul is talking about. So back your eyes up to verse 3 and read what Paul has already said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless Before Him, in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Okay, the Beloved is the Him. So the Beloved in verse 6 is the Him in verse 7. And if you go back and read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus Christ is the beloved of God. The idea is, Jesus is the focal point of all the Father's affections. And now, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we are brought into this wonderful, glorious, intra-Trinitarian love of the beloved and the Father. A tremendous tenderness that exists there. We have union with Jesus. We find our identity in Him because of His love for us. Now look closely in verse 7. Again, 
Think of the first spoonful of God's affections for you, His love for you in Jesus. In Him, verse 7, we have redemption. In Him we have redemption. Let's make sure we know what redemption means in this context. It means to deliver or to rescue. Okay, In Him we have our deliverance. We have our rescue in Jesus. It was often used in the ancient world when talking about releasing someone from slavery. They were redeemed. They had redemption. You make a payment and the slave would be released. You see it in the Old Testament. The idea of the nation of Israel was brought out of captivity in Babylon and other places, but especially in the Exodus. You remember the story of the Exodus? God rescued his people through Moses. Remember how he did it? God went to Moses and said, all right, for 400 years, my people have been captive. That's done with. I'm going to rescue them. God gives a series of plagues and series of judgment, and it culminates in an angel of death, what the Bible calls a destroyer, coming to punish all of those who were not gods. And God says, now I want to mark you as my, my own, my own children. And the way you do that is each family, each household, needs to take an unblemished lamb, an innocent little lamb, and you're going to have to kill the lamb. Because rescue comes with a payment. And so each family would slaughter a lamb. Then they would take the blood, and they would go to their front door, and they would sprinkle the blood all up and down the sides of the doorpost, all on the header, they would put blood And later, when the destroyer, the angel of death, came through, he would see that blood and it would represent something. It would be a signal. It would signify some type of protection over the household. And it would pass over their house and go to someone not marked by the blood of the Lamb. All of this was to point forward. That was 3,000 years ago. But in order to see the consistency of God, we learn here that God still works the same way through Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says, You've been rescued, like the Israelites were rescued, by blood. You've been rescued through the blood of Jesus. In other words, it was the sacrificial death of Christ Himself that paid your deliverance. It wasn't through a little, little Bo Peep sheep, It was through the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. His blood made possible your rescue. The Father offered up Jesus as a sacrificial lamb to free you, not from literal slavery like the Israelites, but from slavery to sin. Slavery and captivity to your own devices, to evil, to Satan himself. Just about 10 years ago this April, when a U.S. cargo ship called the Maersk, Alabama, made the headlines, shockingly so, off the coast of Somalia. You might remember that incident, but the Alabama became the first uh, U.S. ship flying a U.S. flag since 1821 to be boarded by pirates, all right? They were on the coast of Somalia. And a lot of piracy was going on. A lot of ships were being attacked. And sure enough, uh, as they were cruising along in this this cargo freighter, uh, pirates pulled up 
they threw a ladder on the ship. Four of them came on with automatic weapons, and they took over the ship. After a brief negotiation, they actually took the captain, Captain Phillips, and held him hostage. They put him in a lifeboat. They launched the lifeboat, and they took off back towards Somalia. Well, the U.S. Navy got wind of this, and they began to shadow the lifeboat with a destroyer. And as they were shadowing the lifeboat, they could tell that Captain Phillips, for three days as he was held hostage, was being beaten and abused. And the Navy had Navy SEAL snipers aboard the destroyer just waiting for a chance to rescue this guy. And at one point, they were holding the captain at gunpoint. They had an AK-47 to his head, and they were slapping him around. And they made the mistake of uh, poking their heads out. And the Navy SEAL sniper team did their work that they were trained to do, and pop, pop, pop. The pirates were down. Captain Phillips was rescued. And I remember his interview, his first press conference right after that. And he stood up and he said, I want to thank, of course, the Navy SEAL team because they did an impossible job when they saved me. And that's the idea here in Ephesians 1. God is doing an impossible job when he rescues you. How do we know that? You see it later on there in verse 7. Paul says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, our trespasses, our own muck and mess and sin and rebellion and brokenness. That's what made it an impossible job to save us, to rescue us. But Christ in his perfection and his atoning sacrifice actually made it possible. Christ had all he needed to perform our rescue and healing us and forgiving you of your trespasses, your offenses to God, your sin. And he did it through his death. In his death, he became our substitute, taking on himself the punishment for your sin. Paul talks about this elsewhere. It's not just here. A lot of other verses. One of them is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul writes about what might be called the great exchange. Paul says, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin. Dwell on that. He made the perfect lamb to be sin so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Writer Kendall easily explains it this way when he writes this. Jesus is the only human who did not know sin. He never sinned. Both he and his closest followers, Peter and John, explicitly attest to the fact that he never sinned, that he was holy. Yet God made him to be sin. All right, get the concept? Paul's language is really careful. He didn't say Jesus became a sinner, which would be untrue, right? He said Jesus became the representative sin bearer. He identified 100% with the sin of the world, including yours, when he died on the cross. Jesus treated, was treated by the Father as if he were sin itself. When God made Jesus to be sin, it was for us, for our benefit. And the benefit is that we're all joined to him in faith. 
we become righteousness, which is the opposite of sin. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul reminds us that such a love as this is according to the riches of His grace, which He lavishes upon us in all wisdom and insight. So at this point, you can pause. Ask yourself, what are we to make of such an enormous rescuing type of love? It's so overwhelming in God's generosity. I don't know what to do with it. How are we to respond? I read a story recently. A novel, uh, best-selling New York Times author, Richard Baker, has a story. And in the story, he tells about uh, three guys who are behind enemy lines. And they're doing some spy work. And they actually get captured by the enemy. And they're thrown in prison. And after spending about a week trying to figure out how to break out, they've, they've figured out they can't be released. There's no way to break out of this cell. And so they're hopeless. Uh, the lead character, his name is Garen, and uh, he's trying to keep the morale up, but the morale and his buddies are fading because they know the penalty is going to be either a year in slavery or execution for being caught among the enemy tribe, behind enemy lines. And late one night, Someone came to them in the prison. And they looked up and they were surprised because it was a woman named Allure. And Allure was actually the ex-girlfriend of the main character, Garen. And so when she shows up, she was of the enemy tribe. Everybody was suspicious. What's the ex-girlfriend doing here? Because she had broken up. She had spurned the affections of the main character. And nobody knew if you could trust this, but she indeed provided a way of escape. As she provides this way of escape, the lead character, Garen, is like, let's do it. Let's get out of prison. But his buddies were very hesitant. They were like, wait a minute. This is that girl that did you wrong. She's a member of the enemy tribe. How do we know we should trust her? Garen has to step forward. And he says, hey, she just rescued us. Our job is to now live like we have been rescued. And that's the message of this text. God would have you, even today, live like you have been rescued. And that can mean a lot of things. One of this means we are to daily taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? I was thinking about Valentine's Day. And uh, this Valentine's Day, I happened to read an article this is how much I enjoy my Valentine's Day gifts. <laughs> I read an article about what it would mean to be a professional food taster. Specifically, like they have wine tasters, they also have chocolate tasters, right? So I read this article and I was telling my kids that there are actually people who know how to enjoy chocolate more than anyone else. They use strategies, they use techniques. For instance, when they get a piece of chocolate, you may try this at home. They rub it. They rub it because that releases the aromas. And then they'll put it in their hands and they'll cup it. And they'll just inhale it like oxygen. Because that's the only way to truly get the best smell. And then they'll break it before they eat it. Because they want to engage all of their senses. My son said this was his favorite part. When he broke the chocolate, it was like, oh yes, it's going to be good. It crackled. The ears were involved. 
And they would take just a little piece and they wouldn't eat the chocolate. They're tasters, not eaters, right? So they take a little piece and they squish it up and they put it on the roof of their mouth and they just let it melt there. And what they're looking for, is it chalky? Is it creamy? It's all a part of the sensations that they use to taste whether it's salty, it's bitter, it's sweet. This is how God in Christ is meant to be enjoyed. He provides your redemption and he wants you to enjoy him. You have your own ways of enjoying Christ and that's what he's calling to you this morning. Reach out and taste and see that the Lord is good. Every single little chocolate pleasure in your life is meant to point you to the greater pleasures in Jesus. Paul Tripp recently said something similar to this. This week, he tweeted out this. He said, Today, may nothing get your attention more, may nothing capture your heart more, thrill you to the core more than the love of God in Christ Jesus, which is yours today, tomorrow, and forever. If you find yourself enjoying something else, that's fine, as long as it ultimately points you to Christ. I would say that even how you're wired. Enjoy your sports and your food and your music and realize these are supposed to be summed up all in Jesus, reminding you how to enjoy Christ himself. Another response to this text is highlighted in what Jesus himself said, right? Because think about the first century. You had people coming to know Christ, becoming disciples, leaving all that they had behind and saying, I want you, I want Jesus, I want to follow you. Remember what Jesus said? They said, all right. Here's how everybody will know that you're truly my disciples. If you love one another, right? If you love one another. In other words, treasuring Christ has to result in a life of loving people. Very practically, you could ask someone in your life this week, how can I love you better? Both because you're worthy and because I love Jesus. Anything I can do to serve you, anything I can do to love you better, very practical response to this text that God has given you to your redemption in Jesus Christ. Live like you are rescued. That's your first spoonful of love from God this morning is redemption. God is rescuing you in Jesus Christ. There's one more thing in the text here that I want to look at. Point two of your outline, if you're taking notes. Revelation. Here's the second spoonful. It's not enough for Paul just to tell you this morning, in Christ you have redemption. He has one more thing to tell you. And it is revelation. In other words, God's plan is Christ. God's plan is Christ. You'll see that in verses 9 and 10. Uh, Let me start reading here again in verse 7 so you'll get the flow. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. Making known to us the mystery of his will. Catch that phrase, making known to us. God has something to say. He has something to show you. He's got something to make known to you, to reveal to you. Well, what is it? 
Well, he calls it the mystery of his will in verse 9. God wants to make known to you the mystery of his will. The idea here is that he's got something previously unrevealed, something there's no way you could know about, a mystery that he wants to share with you. Now, here's a pro tip. Anytime you're reading the New Testament, you should realize that it's going to be undergirded by the Old Testament. These guys were framed, their thoughts were framed by the Old Testament. And there's only one place that I could find in the Old Testament that had this type of language about wisdom and mystery and God revealing himself specifically. It's in the book of Daniel, in chapter 2. You might remember the story. King Nebuchadnezzar is having bad dreams, right? He's very unsettled by these dreams. And he's got all these counselors around him, and they can't figure it out. And he calls Daniel, and God is with Daniel, and God reveals to Daniel. And so Daniel is able to come and give the dream interpretation. And here's what uh, Daniel says in chapter 2. He said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the latter days. Hopefully you see the language connection there between mysteries and making known. Paul is feeding off that just as Daniel has, was talking about a vision about the latter days, the kingdom of God. Paul now too is going to tell us about what's happening in the kingdom of God now that Christ has come. Alright, so in Ephesians 1, we see this phrase, making known to us the mystery of His will, and Paul's now going to explain that with three other phrases. That's the way Paul works. He's very outliny, he's very organized, and he said, alright, here's my main point, revelation, making known to you the mystery of my will, Here's three phrases that will explain it. I'll tell you those phrases and then we'll talk about them. Verse 9, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. That's the first one. The second one, as a plan for the fullness of time. Verse 10, also in verse 10, to unite all things in him. All right, let's look at those phrases really carefully so we can get the meaning here. First off, look in verse 9. God makes his mystery known to you according to the purpose which he sets forth in Christ. Now, if you're a careful reader of Ephesians, you've already noticed this language, according to his purpose. We saw it already in verse 5, right? Paul says in verse 5, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And next week in verse 11, Paul will say, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So Paul wants you to know that God is revealing himself to you according to his plans. Not willy-nilly, not according to the plans of someone else. They wouldn't be the best plans. He's revealing himself to you in Jesus according to his perfect, fatherly, close, covenant-keeping God plans. He is the most trustworthy. Who has more magnificent plans than God? 
no one. So Paul is saying God reveals himself according to God's plan. Also note, he reveals his mysterious will. He sets it forth in Christ. Okay, Jesus is the vehicle through whom God will reveal himself to you best. All right, if you want to know who God is, Jesus is the vehicle he's chosen to use to reveal himself. You might, you might have seen uh, what's really popular these days. If you're going to have a child and you're pregnant with the baby and you want to share with grandma the gender, when you find out the gender, what do you do? Well, these days, you have a gender reveal video, right? And that way grandma can see it or she can come over. And usually what you do is you use some mechanism that's really close to you to reveal the gender of the baby. That's how it works. So I've seen some. Uh, one guy was a firefighter, right? So him and his wife were filmed by a fire truck holding the hose, and then they turned on the hose and water came out, and then after a while the water turned pink. Hey, it's a girl. Everybody jumps up and down, right? Archery, I've seen guys who are archers. They pull back and they shoot a balloon. The balloon pops. Blue water goes everywhere. Yeah, if you're a baseball player, somebody will throw you a ball and you, you hit it. Ball explodes, pink smoke. Yeah, it's a girl. Very popular now. It's the idea in the text here. God is using something very dear to him to reveal to you his mysterious plan. Christ is the dearest thing to the Father and Christ is being used for the great reveal. Jesus himself is the Father's delight, and he'll reveal the Father's plan. Here's the second phrase. You can find it in verse 10. This is how Paul explains how God is making his will known to us. The second explainer phrase is this, as a plan for the fullness of time. What does that mean? Well, pretty much when the time is ripe, God has chosen to reveal himself to us. You see that same phrase in Galatians 4? We talked about Galatians a lot last year. Maybe you remember Paul using that phrase in verses 1 through 4 of Galatians 4. There Paul gave an illustration of a minor child growing into maturity. So the idea here is in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant era, God's people were looking forward to Christ and what he would do in him and it's the fulfillment of God's promises. Now that Christ has arrived, Christ has given his spirit to his people and the church has matured as the people of God. It's the fullness of time. The time is right. And God orchestrated every political and social and geographic means so that Jesus came at the perfect time for the world to receive him. Christ came when the time was right. Finally, the third explainer phrase we see in the text meant to qualify this idea that God is making his will known to us. Finally, he tells us what the mystery is in verse 10. It's the big reveal, right? And you see it there, the phrase, to unite all things in him, in Jesus. That's the big mystery, something you could not have known. God will bring together all the broken pieces of creation in Jesus. One guy said it this way. 
Christ will emerge as the organizing principle of all creation. All things are being united in Jesus. Another writer said it like this. The work of Christ on the cross is the central axis for the history of all creation, whether in heaven or in earth, since he has redeemed his people and silenced all the hostile powers against God, all things will be united in Jesus. At the end of chapter 1, Paul will end on a very similar note, very similar idea. If you skip down to verse 20 of chapter 1, Paul says, God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as the head of all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. The big idea God has planned everything throughout history to culminate in Jesus. His ascension to the throne, His death and resurrection were crucial. Everything moving forward will be set in motion to one day reach peak magnification of Jesus Himself. Mind-blogging, big picture kind of stuff here. Very, very heavy stuff. All things are organized around Jesus. Now, how do we respond to that? Well, think for a minute what this means, okay? What if I, uh, what if I told you that after church today, I was going to go to Whole Foods, and I was going to buy me some lunch, pineapple, some corn, some veggies, I'm going to take it home, and that's what I was going to eat for lunch. Well, that's no big mystery, right? But it's something that you couldn't have known beforehand unless I told you. Now, think about if you would have seen me earlier than day, knowing that I'm going to Whole Foods now starts to explain some things that you saw happen earlier at my house. For instance, if you were at my house, you would have seen me grab a, a tin spot, a $10 bill off the counter, put it in my pocket. Now you may have thought, hey, that $10, if you're my wife, I could use that $10 for something else. Why is he taking that $10 and putting it in his pocket? What's going on here? I was eating breakfast and I didn't eat any fruit. If you're sitting across from me, you might have said, why is he not eating fruit? Doesn't he like fruit? Is he fasting? What's going on? Doesn't like fruit. He usually likes fruit. What's happening? You might be confused. A lot of things that led up to my actions won't be explained until you know, oh yeah, I'm going to go get some pineapple and some corn for lunch. That's the way life is going to work. Knowing that all reality is organized around Jesus means that every moment in your life has a purpose, okay? Even if you don't understand the purpose, trust me, in Christ, it has a purpose. Both the joys and the trials, they have a purpose. Satan's lie is that creation is organized around you, right? Think back to Adam and Eve. That was his lie to Adam and Eve. This is all about you. Everything that's been created here, let's advance you. Let's get you to the God level. All right? After all, shouldn't you be the center of this? That's the lie of Satan. Paul's truth in God for you this morning is everything is organized around Jesus, and that's much, much better. 
doesn't take all your pain away, but it does help. Say you lose your job. Anytime we go through trial, that hits on two levels, right? You have the outer level, and then you have the core of the thing. The outer level, you lose your job, man, you're not going to have as much money as you thought. may have to struggle for a little while. may have to get a job that you don't like as much. What are people going to think about me if I lose my job? That's kind of the outer struggles. What about the inner struggles? It's usually like this. Why didn't God stop this? Right? God could have stopped this, but he didn't. What good can come from this? It's a deep struggle. Your child is hospitalized. God forbid your child is in the hospital. You have these outer struggles. Ah, she's in so much pain. I hate, I hate to see her in so much pain. And her activity is going to be limited now. And it might be a different story moving forward than I thought for her. And then even below that, even deeper, is the idea... Why is this happening? What is the point? What kind of God do I have anyway? What's the point? God has an answer here in Ephesians if you're willing to receive it. He says the point is Christ. All right? The point of your story is Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's going to land on you as comfort. If you're not, it's going to be scandalous. Right? Christ is the point, no matter what your pain or problem, we can be comforted that God is working in every circumstance. Every blown tire, skin knee, investment, loss, broken relationship is working towards God's ultimate goal of the magnification of Jesus Christ. We were in community group this week. Kathy was talking about community group. We were all sitting around. We were talking. Someone shared a story about a lady who went to the hospital with a severe heart problem, came out of nowhere, she didn't know what's happening. She got there, she had no idea why God planned this, but she knew what the result would be. She began to write out Bible verses, and every nurse, every tech, every doctor that came in, she would just share a simple scripture with them. She knew that her problem could be used to magnify Jesus Christ. There's another point here too in the text. In redemption, we see that evil will not ultimately win, right? Jesus crushed all challengers to the throne when he was on the cross. All things are summed up in Jesus because he's the last man standing. And that's good news. Because without his victory, your suffering would be but a prelude to eternal destruction. But in Christ, this isn't so. Our trials are a part of all creation's groaning for the sun to come home and make all sad things untrue. This text today assures us that this will happen. Now, I've pastored long enough and know sometimes when you say these things, people will say back to me, and I get it, they may say, yeah, but you don't know my problems, right? You don't know the depth of my hurt. So stop telling me this stuff because you don't know how much it hurts. And you're right, I don't. Even if I pray with you and I talk to you, I won't fully understand your hurt. But here's the thing. I'm not asking you to trust me. I'm asking you to trust Jesus. right? I'm asking you to see in your mind the Christ of 
the Gospels. Hear him weep with compassion as his friend Lazarus dies. That's the Jesus I'm commending to you. See the man who's walking to save a dying girl and he stopped because someone's tugging on his shirt and he turns around and it's a sick woman and she says, my life is blood. I just want you to heal me. And he heals her. But in healing her, that makes him late. And when he finally gets to the house, the girl is dead. And Jesus says, it's all right, I'm going to do something here. And everybody laughs at him. And what does he do? He resurrects this girl. It's amazing. He brings her back to life. See Jesus when he gets down on his knees, spits in his hands, rubs them in the dirt, stands back up with mud made from his own spit, and he puts it on the eyes of a blind man. The man goes away, and he's healed. Hear Jesus when he says, let the little children come to me. All right, Forbid not the children from the kingdom of God. See him on the mountain, teaching nothing but truth after truth after truth in full obedience to God himself. See him be arrested. And as they're taking him away, he's like, hang on here. I'm holding back armies of angels just so that you can arrest me today. And see him marching up the hill with his own cross stumbling. He can't make it. Someone else has to carry it for him. But he perseveres. He gets to the hill. And he dies as a sacrifice for your sin. He dies in your place. And then listen, a little bit later, you'll hear the stone being rolled away from his tomb so that all can behold the glory of the risen Lord who defeated death. Man, he's the one to trust. Trust in him. When you're in the middle of your trials, you cannot trust yourself. That's the point. All right? You can't trust yourself. So you're going to lean in somebody. Right? Lean into Jesus. He will be there. This is also for you if you're here today and you're in the good times, man. You got straight A's. You're not failing your classes. Things are going pretty good. You didn't lose your job. You got the dream job you always wanted and you're flourishing in it. You sent your daughter to school. 60% of her class is out with the flu. But not your little princess. She's striving right through it. Things are going well in your life. You're having victories. This revelation that all things are united in Jesus is also for you. Because... I dare say your victories aren't meant to glorify yourself, right? They're not meant to shame all the other people who are having trials right now. What are they meant to do? Your triumphs are like strategic skirmishes that God is creating and victories that are to reflect God's ultimate victory in Christ. Jesus' conquest will be displayed little by little by little as you have good days and good days and victories. Just know that all of those will be wrapped up in Jesus. Right? All things will be united in Him. Your successes are meant to be pieces of a puzzle 
that ends up magnifying Jesus Christ. Recently, I worked a puzzle with one of my kids, and it was an animal puzzle. And the, you know, the way you do it is, I hear you have your pieces, you have your 10 pieces, I'll have 50, and we'll work it together. And uh, so we're working it there together. And I notice over there that his pieces are uh, dark pieces, dark colors, and mine are oranges and whites. And I'm thinking, oh, what's going on here? Well, sure enough, when we work it, um, all of the whites and the light colors, the oranges, come together with the browns and the dark colors, and they make this beautiful contrast. The contrast is a tiger. Magnificent, lovely, glorious-looking beast on the puzzle. And I thought all along, oh, the point was not white pieces, dark pieces fitting together. The point is the finished product. It was this glorious beast. And that's the way Paul wants you to think about your own life today. The point is Jesus. God is uniting all things in him to show off his beauty and his magnitude. So I want you to leave hopeful today. This text is for your hope. God has given you two spoonfuls of really good love. First, redemption. In Jesus, you are rescued in Christ. And secondly, revelation. God's plan for you is Christ. Let's pray together. God, thank you for all that you've given us in Jesus. We glory in this fact that you're uniting all things in Jesus and they will culminate in the great worship of him as Lord and King. Our redemption brings us into your triune love and we love you for it. Help us now, God, go and live as if we were rescued because we are in Jesus. I pray this and other great many blessings for our people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. A unity, a community meal, right? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and you glory in that redemption, that rescue, take the meal with us. If you're here and you're just a seeker, you're just checking things out, you're a guest, you're not following Jesus, that's fine. We're glad you're here. We ask that you stay in your seat and just watch us take the supper together. But as followers of Christ, we're now going to partake of the table. We have a couple here, one at the back. Just ask you to pray. Pray and talk to God about this redemption, this rescue that he's given you. Pray about this great revelation that all things are united in Jesus. And just whenever you're ready, get up and take the table, bring it back to your seat, and let's celebrate the death and the second coming of Jesus together. Let's take the table now.